0: Please open your Bibles the John chapter eight. John chapter eight. And we'll continue working through the end of chapter eight. Lord willing, we'll complete this chapter next week. It's been a long study. Jesus, I'll remind you, is in Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths. And here he is speaking to Jews in Jerusalem, even a subset who had believed in him, who he is unmasking their faith as spurious, illegitimate, and in this morning's passage in particular, Jesus um, insists upon the fact that they live out their nature. He can tell who their father is truly by how they act. Elsewhere, Jesus has taught, and we know this, the tree is known by its fruit. That's the logic Jesus is applying here. So I'd like to begin our time this morning by reading John chapter eight. Let's start back in 39 and we'll go to 47 as we discuss the the paternity, the sonship of the Jews. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Lord God, we pray that you would give us ears to hear that we might hear the words of God. That you might birth life here even now that your spirit might convict of sin, that we might um, recognize our need. And for those of us who know you, the work you have done in our hearts, that we would not be deceived like these Jews, that we would hear Jesus' warning loud and clearly and receive it. In Jesus' name, amen. In this section of John chapter eight, Jesus is unmasking the unbelief and the true condition of the Jews who had believed in him. It's a remarkable transition. All the way back in 30, verse 30, we realize, we read, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Verse 31, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, he's still talking to them. And as hard as what he is saying may be to hear, it is loving of him to say it. If the people he's speaking to truly are spiritual sons of the devil, he does them no favors by pretending otherwise. In fact, I think the most dangerous position you can be in, the most fearful position you can be in is to think that you are right before God, to think that you're his child, and to be deceived. I think the, 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 the greatest um, dilemma would be to be those people in Matthew 7 who say, Lord, Lord, only to hear, depart from me, I never knew you. So Jesus has been growing in clarity. What he spoke subtly earlier, now he becomes more overt. Likewise, their hostility becomes more and more overt. We'll see you next week. Gonna, this passage ends with them trying to kill Jesus. And so the, the central point this morning is like father, like son. Um, you will act out your nature. You, all of human history, all of humanity can be divided into two races, sons of the devil and sons of God. It's a spiritual descent, not physical descent, We've already learned in John chapter one, the birth is not dependent on bloods or the will of man, but of God. But ultimately all of humanity is in one of those two lines, one of those two races, sons of God, sons of the devil. The people Jesus is speaking to insist, they're sons of God, they're sons of Abraham, they're the chosen race and Jesus in love And yet there's a fierceness to this, there's a strength to this, there's a hardness to this because sometimes that is what love requires. Reveals to them, declares to them who and what they truly are. And so let's look at this first point one, God's children love what he loves. God's children love what he loves. And that's the unifying logic of this section. Whose child you are, who's your father, will be Set the course of your actions. That's the causal relationship. Jesus insists because of who they're of or who their father is, they act a certain way. We tend to think it's the opposite. If you act a certain way, you can become God's child. Or if you act a certain way, you may become the devil's child. Here, it's the exact opposite logic. You live out, you act out, your actions flow from your nature and your identity. And so Jesus begins in responding to their claim, we have one father, even God, at the end of verse 41, he he insists, if God were your father, you would love me. Notice the direction of the causality. If it were the case, if it were true that God were your father, then you would do these things. Notice the causality. If God were your father, you would love me. And of course, the logic is a functional sonship. We get the expression like father, like son, or a chip off the old block or something like that. That's Jesus' logic. God's spiritual children evidence his character. They act like he acts, they love what he loves. And so the proof then that they're not God's children is they don't love what God loves. If you, if God were your father, he says, you would love me. So we begin by looking at their claim. They insist, if you press them hard enough, that God is their father. Now there's no evidence that I can see in the Old Testament that individual Jews would claim God as their father, not like Jesus taught us to pray our father who art in heaven. I think it's a radical um, intimacy and drawing near. But Israel corporately would and could speak of God as their father. So in Exodus 4.22, the Lord tells Moses, you shall say to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. Or in Deuteronomy 14, one to two, we read, you are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness in your foreheads for the dead, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. But again, it's a corporate sonship. Mo, um, sorry, Solomon, dedicating the temple, will pray that God is their father, Israel's father. So they, they, Jesus has challenged their claim that Abraham is their father because he says, well, you're not acting like Abraham. Okay, okay. If you really press this, they say, God's our father. And even today, the universal fatherhood of God is a popular belief for all God's children. Jesus doesn't agree with that. Jesus does not agree in the universal brotherhood of man. Not, not in this sense, he doesn't. They claim God is their father, Jesus refutes them. If God were your father, you would love me. And let's fill in some of the logic here. The logic is sons and daughters act like their parent. It's a functional sonship. And the, the logic hinges upon the fact that you would love what God loves. We've already read in John's gospel that the father loves the son. John 3 on verse 35, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. John five twenty, the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. So the logic is the father loves the son And if you were the father's child, you would love what the father loves. Your character would reflect his character. And also by implication, you don't love me, Jesus is saying to them. So he then gives further explanation. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. One other thing to note, this isn't just purely suggestive. This is absolute and certain. I mean, hear Jesus' words, it's certain. If this, then this. If God were your father, it's not you'd be likely that you'd love me or you'd probably, love. you would love me. Notice the causality is certain and absolute. There's no possibility that there are people born of God who don't love Jesus, that's what he's saying. If God were your father, you would love me. Why? For I came from God and I am here. And here the implication is Jesus' relationship with the father. Go back to John chapter 1, where the implications of Jesus coming from being with the Father are made clear. In John 1, 1, famous verse, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. The preposition that we get the English with from in the Greek literally means facing, towards. And the idea is with someone face to face, in fellowship, with some sense of acceptance. The word was face to face, he was God's fellow. There's a sense of equality potentially implied, an acceptance. Then look at 118. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. Now that implication is intimacy. So here is one who is God's fellow. He, he's face to face, he's towards God, with God, and he is intimately connected to God. He's at the Father's side. So Jesus says, you'd love me if God were your father because I'm from God. And the implication of being from God is I know him, I'm in fellowship with him. And we know even further, he loves me and I love him. I came from God, emphasizing his relationship. And second, I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. The other reason you'd love me, Jesus is implying, is that he's on the father's mission. And if you love my father, you'd love those people who carry out his will. You'd love those people who advance his purposes. You'd love those people who are doing your father's will. You'd be excited to see the father's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. That, that's, the, that's the rationale. If God were your father, you'd love me. Why? Because I'm from him. I know him, I love him. I'm intimately related to him. And I'm not, this wasn't my idea. He sent me, this is his mission. So if you're the God is our Father people, you should love the people who the Father loves who are carrying out his mission, who are carrying out his will. This should mark us. The tree is known by its fruit. I've used this example before, but I got five fruit trees growing in my yard. And this year only one of them bore fruit. I'm hoping next year they'll bear fruit. Now I'm told the receipts I have say that they're two pears and three apple trees. But if next year, One of them grows a plum. What could happen? It would be useless for me to pull out the receipt and say, no, 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 This, this is an apple tree. Says it right here. How many of you would be convinced it was an apple? If there's a plum growing on it, how many of you would be convinced it was an apple tree? Even if I had the paperwork and the documentation. Even if I had the receipts. The fruit trumps any claim, right? No, look at it, it's a plum. Jesus is likewise saying the the truth of their actions, the fruit of their deeds undercuts any claim. They can claim that God is their father all day long. And understand, they're observing the Lord's feast in the Lord's temple, on the Lord's chosen city, on Zion, the Lord's holy hill. And Jesus can say, God's not your father because you don't love what God loves, you don't love me. And he says it with certainty. He says it with certainty. Then he flips it the other way. Not only is it true that God's children love what God loves, point two, the devil's children desire what he desires. The devil's children desire what he desires. Now he's implied who their father is before, back in verse 38. I speak of what I have seen with my father. You do what you have heard from your father. And they missed it. They didn't get the implication. So he's gonna be explicit now. He says to them, why do you not understand what i say it is because you cannot bear to hear my word you are of your father the devil your will is to do your father's desires he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him when he lies he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies the devil's children desire what he desires and again this is again that same logic like father like son I can tell who your father isn't by what you do, and I can tell who your father is by what you do, Jesus says. So he begins the rhetorical question Why do you not understand what I say? Why do they not understand what Jesus is saying? And again, we've got causality. Why is this the case? Why is it the case they don't understand and receive Jesus' teaching? And his answer is challenging. Why is it that you don't understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. Because they cannot bear to hear his word. Notice the language of inability. The Greek's even more explicit. You don't have the power, the strength to hear my word. You're too weak to hear my word. You lack the ability. You cannot hear my word. They have deaf ears. It's it's not they choose not to, they cannot. Don't miss that. This is, this is language of inability. They cannot bear to hear his word. And we're tempted when we hear things like that to think that excuses people. Jesus is actually mounting up their guilt. The, the, the implication is you are so deaf and so hardened and so resolute in your course, you no longer are able to hear. That, that's the idea. Like Jeremiah 6.10. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ears are uncircumcised. They cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord to them is an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. Their inability doesn't excuse them, it condemns them. How corrupt are they? How devilish are they? They cannot bear to hear Jesus' words, that's how much. That's, that's the rationale. And why is it that they cannot bear to hear his word? Because of who their true father is. That's the logic he's gonna make. So why don't they hear him? Why don't they listen to him? Why don't they understand? Because they can't bear to hear him. Why can't they bear to hear him? Because of who their true father is. That's, that's the logic. You are of your father, the devil. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do his desires. The reason they cannot bear to hear his word is they want something else. Your love of one thing will conflict with your love for the other. Remember, it's Jesus who said, you can't serve two masters. You're going to love the one and hate the other. Now, here the logic is, your will is set to a different master. And that's why you can't bear to hear what I say. That's why you don't love me. Because we're not moral free agents. We, We will be the slave of someone. Jesus has already said, whoever sins is a slave to sin. Here, your, your desire is locked in your father's will. And therefore, you cannot bear to hear my word. Point B, their strong passion is to do their father's desires. Their strong passion is to do their father's desires. And by the way, this isn't just the state of these particular Jews. This is the state of all people born into this world. Let me read to you what Ephesians chapter three says, two, sorry, two. This is true of all of us. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So Jesus is speaking to this particular group of Jews, but this is true of you and I when we came into the world. This was all of our state. All of us were children of the devil. All of us had our desires locked in step with doing his desires. Their strong passion was to do their father's desire. And then he begins to describe some of the devil's character. And the logic is this. By implication, the devil's character, they're exhibiting. That's, that's the logic. So he goes on to say, you're of your father the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. So point one, the devil was a murderer from the beginning. Now, this is probably a reference to one of two things. The serpent we know from the book of Revelation is the devil, brought temptation into the garden. And because of that, the man and the woman ate of the fruit and they died a spiritual death that day. The serpent deceived them. In Genesis 3, 1, the serpent was more crafty than any of the beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? And she says, no, he says, you won't die. Death entered the world through Adam's actions also in the very next chapter of genesis in genesis 4 cain murders his brother right cain murders his brother and in first john chapter uh, 3 we read this we should not be like cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother so the devil is a murderer from the beginning probably either a reference to introducing death into this world by tempting the woman and the man, or by his own offspring, Cain, murdering Abel. The, the devil's been an agent of death and murder from the beginning. And the implication is Jesus has already stated that you're trying to kill me. That, that's the notion. So, so if devil is a murderer from the beginning and you're trying to kill me instead of love me, then whose kid are you, Jesus is saying. This passage will end with them actually doing it. Jesus has declared it, but look at verse 59 of of John 8. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So your father's not God, he says, because if if God were your father, you'd love me. No, you have a very different father, and your desires are in lockstep with him. And he's a murderer, and he doesn't need to say it. By implication, You're trying to kill me. He's the father of murderers. He's been a murderer from the beginning. And you're trying to kill me. Don't tell me God's your father. You're proving you have a very different father. He was Cain's father. Cain's father. Second, the devil does not stand in the truth. And and that expression, stand in the truth, he has nothing to do with the truth. There's no truth in him or about him. He says more than that. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. The devil does not stand in the truth. There is no truth in him. What's interesting is here's a place where the devil and the living God are exactly opposite. There is zero truth in the devil and he doesn't stand in its way. It's not near him. It's not in him. Conversely, One of the few things that the Bible says God can't do, he can't lie. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18, by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. Or Titus 1, 2, speaking about the hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. So in God, you've got zero falsehood, zero lie. And in Satan, you've got zero truth. And this is one of the key marks of the children of God and the children of the devil. The Satan has nothing to do with the truth and God has nothing to do with lies. So there is no truth in him. Further, lying is his native tongue. Lying is his native tongue, it's natural to him. He is a liar, he speaks from himself. When he lies, it's the overflow of his heart. Lying is his native tongue. And of course, this is true of his children. At the end of Romans 3, summing up the declaration of judgment of mankind, one of the judgments, citation from the Psalms, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Like father, like son. And what's the implication there? Well, they're lying about Jesus. When have they done that? Look, look at the very next verse we're going to pick up next week. Verse 48. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying you're a Samaritan and have a demon? Yeah, they're, they're lying. They're liars. They're, they're calling the Holy One of God a Samaritan who's possessed by a demon. Yes. They're bearing out the fruit of their father, the devil. There is no truth in him. Lying is his native tongue. He is a liar and the father of lies. And so Jesus is looking at these very religious Jews, observing a legitimate religious holiday in the temple of God in Jerusalem, and he says, God's not your father. You don't love what he loves, but you do desire what the devil desires. He's a murderer, you're trying to kill me. He's a liar, you're lying about me. And again, the logic is your actions, your deeds, conclusively and irrefutably prove your identity. And it flows from because you are Satan's child, you act this way. If you were God's child, you'd act this way. That's, that's the rationale. Which brings us to point three. Whose child you are determines your response to the truth. Whose child you are determines your response to the truth. Verse 45 through 47. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. And again, the emphasis here is causality. We're going to answer the question, why don't they hear him? You could ask the question to people today, why don't people today hear him? And, and you'll get answers like, well, they have legitimate questions and they struggle and they've, they're dealing with the problem of evil and they're dealing with all the pain in the world. That's not the answer here. The answer here is far simpler, far more direct. Whose child you are determines your response to the truth. Point A, they do not believe precisely because Jesus tells them the truth. That's, what, that's a remarkable claim. The reason you don't believe it's because I speak the truth. So again, the logic is you're already inwardly slanted against truth. You have a bias for truth. This is why apologetics and trying to defend the faith to people as though they were neutral because most unbelievers you meet will present themselves as neutral. As a scientist with a white lab coat, if you could just make a credible case for me, if you could just answer my objections, if you could just mount a probable um, case, then I would become a Christian. And the reason I'm not a Christian, they say, is because I've got some legitimate questions and objections and challenges, and I've not yet heard a credible case. In other words, credulity, credibility is the basis of rejection. That is not the Bible's answer. Jesus doesn't give that answer. He says precisely because I tell you the truth, you don't believe me. And that only makes sense if we buy the previous premise. Your will is to do your father's will. And how much truth is in their father? How much truth? None. There's no truth in your father and your, your will lines up with his will. He has an aversion to truth, so consequently when I speak truth, you have an aversion to me. The logic's unmistakable here, it's just hard because it challenges our view of people. Jesus, in other words, is stating that their problem, their sin, their corruption goes far deeper and is far more extensive than they want to admit. You have an allergy to the truth. You're looking for the truth like robbers are looking for the police. It's precisely because Jesus is speaking the truth that they're offended and they don't believe him. And he moves on to say, um, which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? What's the point here? Well, the point is that there is no other explanation for their unbelief. Jesus has worked notable miracles and signs in Jerusalem. The beginning of this discourse began with a reference to the, the man at the pool of Bethesda. Jesus has done miracles. We we read earlier in in chapter 2, while he was in Jerusalem, many believed in him. When they saw the signs he was doing, Nicodemus came to him, Teacher, we know you're from God. You do mighty works. Jesus has worked many undeniable miracles. Therefore, he's exercising supernatural power. Then the question comes, is he a prophet from God or is he a prophet of evil? And they can't convict him of sin. Therefore, what's the conclusion? He's a prophet from God. He's the prophet like Moses. This is, the, this is on the lips of the people. These people are self-condemned in 6:14. They said, "This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world." So because of the miracles and the works Jesus has done, you either have to credit his supernatural origin as being from God or from the devil. None of them can convict him of sin. Therefore, there's only one option. He's a prophet from God, therefore. Their unbelief has to mean they're not of God. There's no other option in town. There's no other credible explanation for their unbelief. Turn back to John chapter three. And I emphasize this point because the Bible makes it over and over again. And as we deal with people, and we've got unbelieving family members, unbelieving children, brothers and sisters, um, this is not what they say. And it can be slowly wear away at our confidence. And we tend to feel bad for these poor people who if only they had good answers. If only they hadn't had the life experiences they had, then they'd be believers. And scripture makes it clear no that is not why they reject Christ. John 3:19. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. Here, it's not framed as sonship, it's framed as love. Those would all be valid ways of speaking about it. What do you love? Whose son are you or whose slave are you? Those are the metaphors that have been used. People loved the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. Verse 20, for everyone who does wicked things, hates the light. Notice how the love of one thing creates the hate for the other. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. People don't come to the light because they love darkness and they hate the light. Or, as Jesus said in John 8, people love their sin because they're slaves to sin. Or here, people act like their father. People act like their father. They don't believe Jesus precisely because he tells them the truth. And the miracles he's done and their inability to convict him of sin removes any other excuse or explanation. What do you do when a sinless man working miracles speaks to you? You listen, you heed him. They aren't. Therefore they reveal who their father is. There's no other plausible excuse. And then he closes with whoever is of god hears the words of god the reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of god and there he says it both ways uh, he says it apophatically, the positive and the negative there, there's no way around this and again notice the causal link everyone Born, I put the word born, of God hears the words of God. The Greek's just everyone from God or of God. But I think John's gospel has already made it clear in Jesus talking with Nicodemus and bringing sonship and who you're fathered by into the, the equation in this discussion. It's a valid inference. Everyone of God, everyone born of God hears the words of God. How many people who are born of God don't hear the word of God? Zero. Zero. Everyone born of God hears the words of God. Turn to, turn to John 10. This, again, is the, the marker of God's children. This is, this is why when people abandon biblical fidelity, it's so concerning. The hallmark of God's children is they hear his word, they submit to his word, they love his word. John 10. Truly, truly, I say to you, he does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in another way, That man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Look at verse 25 of chapter 10. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Again, notice the causality. We want to think they're not his sheep because they don't believe. They become not his sheep by not believing. Jesus puts it exactly backwards. Why don't they believe? You're not my sheep. You don't become Jesus' sheep by believing, you show you're Jesus' sheep by believing. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. I'm trying to show you this is Jesus' consistent logic. Jesus' consistent logic. Everyone born of God hears the words of God. And then he says it negatively. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of or from God. The reason why they do not hear Jesus' words is because they are not born of God. That's a statement of inability. And I, and I know it raises questions. We can talk about in the ABF. They can't hear his words because they're not of God. That's how deep the problem goes. What Jesus is doing here is is demonstrating their inability. They're born slaves to sin. They're born children of the devil, and they don't need a makeover. They need a new heart. Or if you turn back to John three, they need to be born again. They need a radical inward change. And as long as these people refuse to acknowledge their true condition, there is no hope for them. As long as they think of themselves as sons of Abraham and sons of God, yes, maybe they make some mistakes here and there, but they're basically all set, then then Jesus has nothing for them but judgment. This is hard to hear, but it's necessary until we come to the point where we recognize, as Paul says, nothing good dwells in me. Until we can hear Jesus' words in John 3. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus with some positive things to say. Rabbi, we know that you've come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. When we studied this, I I insisted that Jesus is saying the new birth is the cause, the cause and not the effect of their faith. The spirit has to do a work in the heart. Jesus is saying the same thing here. What would a faithful response to what Jesus is saying be? It would be to, to receive his diagnosis and to cry out for help. We see in John four, Jesus says to the woman at the well, if you knew who was speaking to you in the gift of God, you would ask and he would give you living water. You could cry out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Give me a new heart. But we're powerless to birth ourselves. We can't flip the switch. And we must come to recognize that is how deep the problem goes. These people are self righteous, they're self confident, and Jesus is exposing that. Turn finally, before we close and prepare for a time of communion, to 1 Peter. One of the reasons I, I emphasize this is I believe God desires the praise and the glory when He does overcome this problem. If you're a Christian, let me read to you why you're a Christian. Let me direct you to who to give the credit. For that too. This even ties in with last week's message on assurance. First Peter, chapter one, and we'll read this. I'll say a few remarks and then we'll pray and have our time of communion. Blessed be, verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why, why ought God be blessed? Why is that fitting and right? Well, one reason is, according to his great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. Who gets the credit for the new birth? You don't. I don't. Bless God for it. Bless God if you're born again because he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith. What's keeping you believing? God's power. He birthed you, and by his power, he's keeping you believing. He's guarding you through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So if you're a Christian here today, give God the glory for working in your heart. You didn't birth, your. you had as much to do with your new birth as you did with your first birth. Bless God for birthing you. Bless God for giving you a new heart and taking out your heart of stone. And the other good news is, ask God to do that for those you love. This is good news. I know it can be frightening news, but it's good news because God can actually save your children and your loved ones. He can birth them. Virtually every Sunday, I pray that God would birth, give eyes to see, ears to hear, take out hearts of stone, and give hearts of flesh because he can and does do that. We're gonna celebrate in a few months the Lord's table. That's precisely part of what we're giving him glory and thanks for. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Let's pray. Lord God, we Thank you for working in our hearts. We give you the credit and the glory and you the credit and the glory alone. You brought us forth by the word of truth according to your will. You, by your spirit, convicted our hearts of sin and opened our eyes to behold the glory of your son. Lord God, I pray that there are any here this morning that do not know you, that even now you would birth them You would open their eyes, unstop their ears, take out the heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. Gift faith where there is none. Bring more sons and daughters home. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.